Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Growing Pains podcast on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network. I would say I'm Matt George, and then you'd hear David Campbell say he's David Campbell, but it's just me today. The boss got the day off. (laughs) We're doing the eighth and final installment of Turning Point. Turning Point has been the webinar and podcast series that has been our collective opportunity to rediscover and reimagine New Brunswick on the other side of COVID-19. And that experience has come to an end or comes to an end with this podcast that's being released Thursday morning. Am I right about that? No, Wednesday morning. It's Tuesday right now. Wednesday morning, this podcast will be out on all platforms. We'll make sure to do a quick minute at the end of the show to let you know what comes next after Turning Point. We don't want this to be the end. In fact, we just want this to be the beginning. So we want to ride the momentum of bringing these topics to light, understanding what to double down on, and then take action on some of those issues related to COVID-19. And with that, we have our lead facilitator for the eighth installment of Turning Point, Herb Emery. Herb, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. You just completed the eighth and final installment of Turning Point. You were the lead facilitator. Can we ask you to just give us a quick synopsis of some of the take-home points of that presentation and what we should be thinking about going into our panelist conversation? Well, I think what I was picking up, having also been involved in some of the other discussions on the economy, is this was one that was really, there were a lot of buttons firing if you were following the chat and the comments along. And it's really around, I was picking up in a sense, a tone of frustration that there's a interest in having a broader discussion uh, from the social sector with government, with the private sector, to really talk about what the opportunities are for doing better coming out of this. And in part, I think it's because the social sector is probably feeling more pain uh, than the government sector and the private sector right now, other than small business. And so there's a sense in which they're on the sharp end of the stick. A lot of their clients are the ones that aren't being picked up by federal benefits. Uh, As you know, the disabled uh, were basically not included because of a fight over a bill. And so that's an area where you have impaired ability to work at the best of times. You've lost some of the social opportunities with respite care, uh, things like that. So we really, I think you found, let's say, the hot turning point that coming out of COVID, I really think there needs to be some dialogue going on between social sector leaders, government and business sector about how we can do better. The sector just also seems to be big. In New Brunswick. And I know maybe that's just because that's my sphere, socially and professionally. But here's what I was thinking going into the discussion. I think there's more to be said about the Mother Teresa complex. And I'll explain what that is as we go, because I think it's a real thing. When I graduated from UNB, I went to work at JDI. Now, that was mostly, it was two things. It was one, it was a fear-based decision because of student debt burden. And Durendra Shukla on the last episode of Turning Point made some really good points on if we're going to increase entrepreneurship or appetite for risk, we need to lower the student debt burden because that clouds a lot of students' judgment when they graduate. And it certainly clouded mine. But also I thought it was a place where I could move really fast. The old Facebook moniker, move fast and break things. I'm not sure that's a great idea given how many things Facebook has broken. But (laughs) in the sense that you can move quickly uh, you can be kind of brash with your work ethic. It's kind of a place where that's celebrated in the private sector. And then 
you go to the public sector and not so much. It's much more collaborative. Um, it kind of revolves to the mean as opposed to the highest output. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But what I was thinking was JDI had some unbelievable leadership. And I thought in my head, how do I convince someone? I was thinking specifically of the CTO at the time to go over into the social economy and work on one of those big, hairy problems. And in the current framework, I think it's impossible because those people want different things. Now, there's incredibly talented people within the social economy. One leader I would point to that has absolutely blown me away is Randy Hatfield, the head of the Human Development Council. And it just struck me that how do you get more Randys? How do you get more of these people thinking about these big, hairy topics? But if you're going to, if you're going to look at the sector and see that most people, especially on the front lines, are overworked and underpaid... It's a hard sell. There's lots of turnover. How do you encourage not only growth of the sector, but changing some of the processes that are in place currently? I don't know the answer. And hopefully the panelists can help me. Well, there's, again, the problem is you're thinking so big, you're trying to swallow that elephant in one bite. You've, you can take an engineering approach, which is one I saw through the Alberta Network for Immigrant Women, which is you break the problem down into what's something we can do first. And then once you get some traction on it, you move on to what can we do next? So it's sort of a linear engineering model where you're bringing in those private sector skills and engineering. And we were seeing people with finance expertise coming in and saying, well, if you need a loans program, this is how we would set it up. We'll get the community to pledge their security against a giant line of credit. Mm -hmm. You guys handle deciding who should get the money. And basically it was the private sector didn't put money up, but they pledged their uh, guarantee for the bank so that the bank would just give the money a prime plus one, not 25% interest. Mm. So you can do that. The other approach is how do you get the the leadership in there? And this is the challenge with, I'll, <laughs> I'm going to pick on your generation, but mine's just as bad. Which you is, do. There's a lot to be picked on. So we, we use things like debt and things like that. Mine was the first generation to face higher tuition payments after the baby boomers said it was a mistake to give them low cost. Everyone else should pay more. And it was kind of a cop out that it became sort of we could be more self-focused because we weren't being treated the same way as previous generations were. And Putnam wrote about this with the decline of social capital mm -hmm. in his book, Bowling Alone. And there's a sense you go around New Brunswick, you'll find older New Brunswickers who are still active in a lot of um, what you would call social organizations in the community, volunteering, uh, doing, making a lot of effort to make events go. We do okay with things like harvest jazz and blues, but how often have you seen that level of volunteering for uh, helping some kids get out to the beach or getting a summer camp open so someone can go or helping a camp figure out how to resolve the COVID challenges so that disabled New Brunswickers could go to summer camp for this year. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a sense in which some of it is it's turning from me Brunswick as a friend called this province to uh back to one where there's a bit more of a cooperative and collective ethic. And one of the interesting things about Alberta, where the government seems to do less but spends a lot more on what it does, is a lot of the things that are done here were done in, in Calgary and Edmonton in the community. And so you paid community fees, you were required to volunteer time and things like that. And so you had a very different ethic and vibe in terms of how things got done. And since moving to New Brunswick, I see people who do that, but I don't see communities 
doing things in quite the same way. And that's the social capital piece that might be, let's call it, a bit diminished because there is such a heavy reliance on the government for funding and the government for approval and the government for endorsement. Mm -hmm. And again, if we're driving our young out to other provinces and they're volunteering in Toronto and figuring out Toronto's big social problems, how do we get them to want to come here and do it? Yeah. There's two questions from the audience that you've answered in the Q&A, but I wanted you to be able to expand, but also give the answer in a different medium for those listening. This is from Eric. Hi, Eric. Where does the cooperative business model fit in the social economy? Well, cooperative business models are a tricky one because there's models in healthcare which are technically cooperative run because they're not for profit and they might be physician owned, uh, but everyone's still making a high income. And at the end of the day, I would say they're just a for-profit enterprise with a, a generous corporate definition. In other cases, you'll find a cooperative effort, which is not for profit. No one's really making any money. And it's sort of just a model that's allowing uh, some way of raising funds so that like a charity so that you can keep the lights on. And I think the risk is when we try to classify, it's often coming in around how we're deciding who should be eligible for funding through a program. Uh, and in a lot of cases, we've seen distortions coming through just tax incentives. Uh, what kind of corporate structure is more advantageous? So to me, as an economist, I'm going to completely leave Eric unsatisfied, <laughs> is that this taxonomy, which I think is important, I'm not very good at. Because to me, it's often a case of what's the most advantageous corporate structure we could pick. And if you want to call me in the business sector with one versus the social sector, uh, we can go with that. Like On the other side, we could ask, where does an, a crown corporation fit? It's autonomous to government, potentially, and it's not for profit. Uh, so is NB Power in the social sector? Is it in the business sector? It's, mm it's not government. And so it's kind of a flippant response, but it's mainly because I don't have a good answer for Eric. Mm -hmm. And it's an important question. Thank you, Eric. And Liz. Hi, Liz. Have you considered the ramifications of using the GPI rather than the GDP as a measurement of success? We have looked at the GPI and I do teach classes to first year students on how we got to GDP in the first place through measures like GPI. Can you tell us and what G the GPI is? Gen the Genuine Progress Indicator was an attempt to adapt gross domestic product by adding in things like environmental damage as a negative, so subtracting away from GDP, and adding things that like social capital or doing good things in the community as a benefit. And so the idea was to get a more holistic valuation of all of the activity that goes on in your society, not just the things you can uh, count in the market. The challenge with the GPI is that it's, said, it's got the same problems as GDP, which is at the end of the day, you have to come up with a value to assign and you have to pick a weight to average it in with everything else. And so when you get into picking those weights and picking the values, it gets kind of thorny. Does everyone agree that that's the value we would put on and does it deserve a 3% weight in our basket or a 30? Mm -hmm. And so based on those arbitrary assumptions, you can take something that becomes a very big piece for advocacy that may not be giving you anything that's that helpful over the bad number you had already. So in other countries, you've seen they just completely punted on income-based measures like gross domestic product, and they want to measure happiness directly. Now, the curious part, it tends to be in more autocratic societies where they want people to reveal they're happy. Uh, but you could go out and do that. And in a lot of cases, 
you'll find that there's no correlation between happiness and per capita GDP, which is the economist's measure of well-being. Mm-hmm. So don't we you, see this in interesting ways, though, in in fairly prosperous countries? I mean, I know I have Scandinavian friends who think a lot about their quality of life, but they're also extremely productive people. There just seems to be a really, really tight social contract. I talked to my friend in Norway, Asbjorn, and Asbjorn, I was asking him, how is COVID-19 rolling out in Norway? And he he kind of giggled and he said, uh, he said, yeah, um, things are pretty good. The uh, those who are vulnerable will stay home and we'll take care of the rest and uh, it'll be fine. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it, one example, though, that we're not very good at those comparisons is that we look at them, they say they all seem happy and they all seem to be dressed nice and stuff like that. But then when <laughs> it comes down to it, so we did this in Alberta, we said you should be saving your energy resources for the future. Mm-hmm. And when it came out, well, to do that, we would have to have a sales tax like Norway. It became clear that no one wanted to give up the higher incomes that they have now in order mm-hmm. to do something in the future. And if you go to some of those countries, they don't have the palatial homes that Canadians have grown accustomed to. They don't all own two Mm. cars. So what you have is a society that's also settled on uh, what I would call better style and clothing and healthier eating, but they don't have the same ostentatious uh, Mm. consumerism that we like so much here. Bikes and a condo. We're we're basically very American in our consumption habits, and we get outraged when someone tells us we can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. We want other people to stop, but not ourselves. All I know, Herb, is that Asbjorn got paid to get a physics degree, and his country has a sovereign wealth fund that is endless. Well, in Alberta, they used to pay for people's degrees when the Heritage Fund was larger. Uh, mm-hmm. And we could pay for most people's degrees. And in return, you would have to agree to a 60% tax rate when you graduate. Right. That's right. the model that we were closer to when the baby boomers went through, which was very high top marginal tax rates and basically free education going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bargain that changed after the 1990s was you pay more of your own way up front. You get to keep more down the road. And so... If you're successful, you may decide you don't like that bargain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're, Indeed. your degree didn't work out. But we also looked at income contingent student loans in the 90s. So your student loan, you only pay back if you make a high income. If you weren't mm-hmm. successful, it's basically forgiven. We have all kinds of creative financing models we could use, but government doesn't want to give up the revenue. Mm-hmm. And Got your it. generation has been terrific for buying all of the hooks, lines, and sinkers that government's thrown at you to explain why you'll pay more up front and you'll pay more later when people like me need health care. Indeed we have. I can't even <laughs> tell you how many times I've heard when you're 50, you won't even think about it. I said, okay, I trust that that's true. Herb, you've been very gracious with your time. This has been the final installment of Turning Point. Let's get to our panelists. It's been a lot of fun to work with you on this project, and I hope we get to see your return on the podcast soon. Thanks, Matt, and great job. Thanks, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, panelists, we're on the podcast. This is where I feel the most comfortable. We can let our hair down. We can unbutton our sleeves. This is certainly less formal. We can be a little more conversational and hash out some of the topics that the audience wants us to hash out. But before we do that, we're going to start with you, Karina. Maybe just a quick reflection on, on what you heard from her, but also the opening remarks that you introduced in the webinar, maybe just a synopsis about what you're thinking about right now in light of COVID-19 and the social economy. 
Sure. Thanks, Matt. Um, to give context of who am I, um, I'm with the Pandeshpande Center, and uh, we are focusing on systems change. So what exactly is that and how does it relate to this conversation? We fundamentally believe that we have our most complex socioeconomic problems that we're facing, of which we are probably in the midst of some of the most difficult ones right now, are a result of improperly designed systems, uh, systems that have been designed with very sort of uniform focused lenses and not diverse ones. So when I reflect on, you know, what Herb was talking about in the social economy, it makes me realize that just the fact that we label things social, public and private is already a problem with the way we've designed the system. And each of those sectors is motivated by different things. Um, and as we get the results that the motivations uh, drive. So private sector is very bottom line driven. The public sector is voted by a political agenda. And the social sector is picking up the pieces and, and trying to, um, to support our most vulnerable. So each of those things are valued in very different ways in society. Um, and that's part of the problem. So we need to figure out better ways to design systems that meet the needs of the many instead of the few. So I think that's our yeah. challenge. And I think New Brunswick's poised to do that. We're small, we're connected, um, mm -hmm. we're very uh, compassionate, we care about each other, we're collaborative. And so we should be the place where we do systems change better than anybody else. Yeah, I think you're right. What you made me think of when you were speaking was, I was listening to a Brene Brown podcast with Ibram Kendi, and, and he said that you can change yourself as an individual and you should be encouraged to do that. We should all be encouraged to improve if our, if our behavior is less than good, but group level behavior only changes when you rewrite the rules. You have to change the systems and we probably have to get a little bit more humble about if things like constitutions or statues or legislatures if those things need to be rewritten because they were written without a specific lens or written by specific people, I don't know why we're so, whatever the opposite of humble is, we need to be more humble about making those changes. Those changes seem, seem to me as just changing as the future demands, but there are certain groups that get hurt by making those changes. But if we don't evolve and grow and rewrite as we go, and, and also the terminology you mentioned, within a constitution, they're called amendments. You can amend an amendment, right? We can do this. We can make those changes. So I'm happy that you introduced systems level change, and we're lucky to have you on the podcast as well. Haley, we'll come up to you with the same thing. I loved when you put on your sunglasses because New Brunswick's future was <laughs> too bright. That was completely excellent. And I want you to also just take a minute to reflect on some of the things you're thinking about in light of COVID-19 and the social economy. Well, one of the things our organization, um, you know, we've been successful through COVID to, to with our mission of, of helping people with a mobility disability be more independent and active. And one of the things I think that that's really driving that is the fact that we really believe that um, the nonprofit sector, that we can't just keep spinning our wheels in service delivery, that we also need to have a public policy lens. So that's about 30% of my role to ensure that we're engaging in the research and development and Work, working with our population to come up with the solutions that are right for them. And so, and often, you know, briefing notes and presenting the government and looking at policy alternatives and, and jurisdictional reviews, like that is so critical. And not all organizations have the capacity to do that, but we find it so essential because we don't want to keep 
spinning our wheels on housing and um, guaranteed annual income and food security issues. And um, even though those are what we're being called on to help with the most right now. So um, I, I just, after today's discussion, it just, you know, I, I uh, really appreciate our corporate partners, our government partners. We've advanced so many things, but, um, you know, to Karina's point, we, we need so much more work on system change to modernize it, to make sure that the lenses of all these pillars are engaged. Um, and I just go back to my home support strategy like that, the home support uh, pi- private worker issue. That's a huge economic issue. Forget the social impact on people with a disability who need the help. Like if we lose those private workers in New Brunswick in a province that, you know, can't recruit and retain enough and with the oldest population and highest disability rate in Canada, we're in a lot of trouble from an economic mm-hmm. impact, from a self from a health impact. So we need to make sure that we're we're putting that, you know, social policy lens lens on things. And uh, I really enjoyed today. Really good thoughtful questions as well. Mm. And we have some great ones from the audience. And I actually think I'm going to give one to you right now, Haley. There's one that sticks out to me from Clifford. Hi, Clifford. Thanks for listening. In recognizing the heavy load volunteers undertake due to lack of government support, how is volunteer burnout assessed and how might it be remedied? And I know you will not be experts on every question that comes in, but we need the audience's input here. So thank you, Clifford, for asking that question. And we'll give that to you, Haley. That's a really good question. One of the things, you know, we talk about, uh, Herb talked about the need that we actually have, you know, lower percentage of volunteers compared to Nova Scotia. And, you know, there's a lot of research on, on why that is. But I'm we're seeing a trend in our organization that it's not as much hard to recruit volunteers, but our work has become so specialized. During COVID-19, I'm so thankful that the last two years we invested in significant mental health training because we had more escalations mental health escalations among our service participants than we've had in the last five years. And that required some significant training investments over the last three years that's not often accomplished by, you know, someone that may be able to give two, three hours a month. So, um, but we have a significant amount of volunteers that help us with with drop-offs, office administration, boards, uh, you know, our board of directors. And we see that burnout because it's often the most volunteer hours coming from, um, you know, the few and we have to really take care of our volunteers to make sure we're not asking too much. We have translation volunteers, any gap that you can think of. Um, but the, the area where we really struggle in, in employing volunteers is around our direct service because it's become so specialized. But to, to get directly to that question, volunteer burnout is a huge issue because we are, when we need help, we go out to the same often top, we have 300 volunteers that help us in our organization and it's often the, the same top 30 or 40 that we have to reach out to to see if they can help with a specific need and during COVID it might have been something like a delivery or a drop-off or a pickup of a donation of equipment or an air conditioner or something like that so um, volunteer burnout um, really does concern me yeah for sure thank you very much Clifford for that audience question Tim we'll come down to you with a similar question to to reflect on some of the things that you're thinking about right now in regards to housing, maybe the social economy in general in light of COVID-19, and then we have a good question to kick off our discussion as well. So 
Yeah, it was a great, uh, great discussion. Uh, again, I, um, I work with the Cooperative Housing Federation of Canada. Our mission is to inspire, represent, and serve our members in a united cooperative housing movement. Uh, we've got uh, over a thousand members, uh, coast to coast to coast, and we uh, we represent housing co-ops as as home to a quarter million uh, Canadians in every province and territory. And uh, the the main the main reflection uh, that uh, that we're pondering is uh, the public health prescription during COVID-19 has been very simple, direct and to the point. Uh, to, reduce to, to reduce the spread of COVID-19, stay at home as much as you can. So what happens if you don't have a home or your home is not affordable or suitable to your needs or your home is dangerous? Uh, and, uh, and what are the broad social, economic and health consequences of housing insecurity, and, and what are we going to do about it? Uh, because um, moving forward, it's integral to our, our collective public health and our economic and social security that everybody has access to a, a decent place to call home. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's interesting is, is housing cooperatives across the country have been weathering this storm, uh, situated in, in the social economy. They're uh, uh, it's a bit of a tenuous connection because housing co-ops are not charities. They're not. They're non-governmental. Um, they are uh, private membership associations. It's a business structure that allows people to come together to meet their needs and aspirations. So, in the case of housing co-ops, uh, folks are coming together to uh, to organize their housing needs. And in Canada, housing co-ops are are uh, predominantly not-for-profit. So there's no outside landlord. So every dollar that gets raised by the cooperative goes right back into the quality of life of uh, for, for yourself and your neighbors in, in your community. And uh, they're autonomous uh, and independent and they're very resilient. And so what's interesting is, is one of the biggest issues that our members have, have brought forward in terms of uh, business adaptations during COVID-19 is uh, co-ops operate on this principle of democratic member control. And uh, so the members elect their board of directors among their neighbors to, to oversee the management of the property. And uh, people were like, well, how do we meet? during uh, uh, COVID-19? How do we meet to pass a budget, to oversee the, uh, the management, to make sure that we're upholding our, our responsibilities to, to ourselves and, and our neighbors? And uh, co-ops have been amazingly adaptive and uh, resilient in, uh, in the face of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Eric from the audience, he seems to be on the exact same wavelength as you. He says, where does the cooperative business model fit in the social economy? And you've just reflected on that in terms of housing. I don't know if you want to further that in addressing Eric. Well, it's it's uh, particularly in the New Brunswick context. I think uh, cooperatives are uh, they don't have to be uh, they don't necessarily have to have a social mission. Um, you have producer cooperatives uh, of in in agriculture. You mm -hmm. have uh, mutuals that offer insurance. Um, you it, really any common cause. Uh, you have worker cooperatives that come together uh, to uh, to bring their products to market. But co-ops operate under a, a set of values and principles that put people first and and keep a really close connection to put deep roots down in a community. So when you're seeing who's 
where are the layoffs and where are people closing their doors? Um, and it's uh, uh, you're seeing greater resilience in cooperatives in terms of employment stability um, and 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 in loyalty with their customer base uh, during uh, during this pandemic. Uh, co-ops are good for good times and bad times. Right. Karina, we're going to come to you with an audience question. And again, they seem to be on a similar wavelength as you. We have a very smart audience on the Growing Pains podcast. This is Francis. Hi, Francis. Do you believe that siloing of sectors, such as the social economy, is a deterrent to working on complex issues that are impacting New Brunswickers? If so, what would be your suggestions in enhancing collaboration and multi-sectorial partnerships? Thank you, Francis. Yes, Francis, I 100% agree that <laughs> siloing of our sectors is part of the problem. Um, again, it's by design. Um, our system delivers the outcomes that it was designed to deliver. And it just acknowledges the fact that the systems were poorly designed from the beginning. And as I mentioned earlier, it's related to those reward mechanisms that have been put in place and what we value as a society. And so I think the really cool thing is that I think we are starting to change and shift our mindsets around what we value, um, you know, as Canadians and hopefully globally as well. So that means that more of us are willing to come to the table to redesign the systems in a more equitable, inclusive way. So how do we do that? How do we break down those silos across the sectors? Well, you have to convene the champions and that's difficult. And it's one of the things that we've been doing with New Lab, um, which is our public and social innovation lab, is, is bringing and convening people together with very different agendas um, and very different sets of experience and convincingly believing that they have the right answer to the problem and using the tools of systems thinking and user-centered design to unravel those biases and help people realize that we have common vision, but we only see a piece of the problem based on our experiences. There's a great analogy with the seven blind men and an elephant, mm -hmm. and each is holding a piece of the elephant. And the one who's holding the trunk says the elephant is like a hose. And the one holding the tail says, no, 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 the elephant's like a rope. And the one holding the leg is saying, no, no, it's like a tree trunk. And they're all right but they're only holding a piece of the elephant. And that's the way we've been trying to tackle our problems is we are all holding a piece of it and we need to sit around the table right. and eliminate our biases and move together towards better solutions. So that's how I think we, we take our first steps. Yeah. And thank you, Francis. And it makes me think too, that you, you can't, you can't argue that a policy is supposed to do X when it does Y. A policy is what it does. It's not what it says it does. So you're right. We, we've, we've excluded certain individuals. And so the policy, although it may sound equitable, if it isn't equitable, it's not equitable, full stop. Or unless it seems to this lowly podcast host. <laughs> Two questions. Actually, I'm going to start here. This is interesting. I'm going to go to you, Haley. I'm going to see, and, and, and because this is a podcast, feel free to jump in, any of the panelists, if you if you've recognized patterns or have anything to say on these topics as well, but this is Guy. Hello, Guy. Have you seen a difference between rural and urban when it comes to the social economy? 
That's a really interesting question. Um, it is, I, isn't I sit it? on a, a network of um, like-minded organizations throughout the country um, that are doing similar direct service as us. And I'm constantly amazed that we are one of the only provinces that has a 50-50 sp- split in our demographics of the service participants, the clients we're seeing um, in terms of rural and urban. And one of the things, the reason for that has been that, um, you know, I've been here 14 years now, 14 years ago was predominantly urban and when we reached out to people that needed our help and surveyed and engaged them um, our service model of having people come into offices was ridiculous people wanted a kitchen table service so we could look at what um, assets they had in their communities, supports they had in their home, equipment they might need in their home. And so we shifted our service model. And lo and behold, five years later, you know, here we had this 50-50 rural urban split. So now instead of building infrastructure in urban cities and getting new offices, we don't want to have any more ability and be offices in this province. We hire people, work from home through a reach approach that deliver a kitchen table service with people, sit down, have coffee, have tea, um, and, and talk about, you know, what their goals are, what their needs are, and then map out what's available for them. Um, so in terms of, I, I in this province, um, for service delivery, we do have a lot of urban phenomenon where there's services like employment assistance services that are only available in certain urban centers. And we really need to rethink uh, a lot of those models because I'll tell you, when you, you start talking to the rural population on um, what the services they want and what that needs to look like, your demographics will, sh- or it will shift quickly. So um, we need to, you know, nonprofits need to take a greater look at how to reach that rural population because it's there. They don't want to move into urban centers. Many of them can't. We have a lot of people we work with that there was a originally, you know, big economy in their region. And when it dried up, the value of their land, their homes, they can't even sell their homes, you know, um, and they have natural supports in their network that help them with food and, and housing and drives. And so, um, you know, New Brunswick is a largely rural province. And I'm, I'm really pleased that we've been able to address that gap. But there's, we need to take a look and make sure that we're providing equitable service in all kinds of social and health service delivery throughout the province to both populations. Yeah, one thing one thing that I'm really bullish on that this province could do, as long as we get the broadband and connectivity that we need that we don't have, in fact we have far too little, is is continuing to be distributed. Obviously, number one is is in person, in person's excellent. But if something is geography based, if someone has to get to a location to get a service, I like your model. It's results based, it's reach based. So what we really need to focus on is not open more offices. What we need to do is increase tech literacy and get people tech enabled. There was a stat that came out that uh, on the South Central Peninsula in St. John, and I don't have data to back this up, but someone in the education field said 40% of students on the South Central Peninsula were unable to distance learn during COVID. That's that's ridiculous. It, it, if it's that high, that's a travesty. So we need to fix that really quick. And there's some things we can do. I just want to, to add that. to that too. The youth sure, we work with in COVID has increased that exponentially. They, you know, and that's why we got iPads. They want to text. And so that that's part of the in-between service delivery. So we need to be more adaptable in terms of technology as well. Because our youth population, they want us using apps for communication, not email. Yep. Apparently email's like not hip anymore. Like who knew, right? So, um, yeah, we need to be more innovative on the tech side. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I write a newsletter through the podcast network and 
my 18-year-old sister texted me and said, is there any way that you can get this in a text? Because I think if you did that, you'd get people in my, in my age group. And I said, huh, maybe I'm older than I thought. Thanks, Haley. Um, for you, Tim, two of them, right in a row, actually. Jason, hi, Jason. How strong is the co-op housing sector in NB compared to other provinces and territories? And Kareen follows up with, are there many housing co-ops in NB? Great, uh, great question. Good context. I should probably should have offered that. Uh, probably should have offered that up in the in the chat uh, earlier. Uh, it the, the size of the co-op uh, housing co-op sector in New Brunswick. It's it's small. Um, it's about a dozen uh, cooperatives, in uh, mostly concentrated in Saint John and Moncton, and uh, a portfolio of about 800 co-op homes. So that's the that's the size we're we're dealing with in in New Brunswick. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, I, but I did also want to pick up on what Haley was saying about the, the digital, uh, divide mm -hmm. and, and, and excellence in service delivery. And I find that is really, um, uh, a, a, uh, uh, an area of excellence in a lot of social, uh, economy organizations is finding what's the best way to put the, uh, user or the consumer, um, or the person at the center of what we do and organize around the person. And uh, Haley, you you and your organization are uh, like world-class in, in that regard and in, in your, your approach to service delivery. And uh, it's um, COVID-19 for me and, and my team. So we're an advocacy organization, but we're also a member services organization. We, uh, we do asset management planning for our members. We offer an insurance program. We're a member owner of the cooperators insurance company. Um, so we, we also need to connect with our members and, and being a national organization, we've always had to do it over distance. Um, and that's also that's also involved a lot of events and travel. But my team, um, my goodness, you know, one day we were all in the office, and then the WHO declares a pandemic, and that Monday everybody's immediately working from home, uh, and and we're we're we we transition very rapidly in trying to find ways to to uh, effectively stay connected as an organization while everyone's working remotely. Um, I'm at my kitchen table actually, so Haley, anytime I'm serving somebody, it's uh, it's kitchen table service uh, from from mm -hmm. my place. Um, but I am concerned about the 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 uneven access to broadband and the digital divide in making sure that um, we, we're able to uh, to serve all of our members over distance um, for as long as we can't uh, do in-person uh, uh, service or, or, or support. So we need to continue to work on that and we need mm -hmm. some infrastructure to, 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 to help respond to uh, this new reality. Totally. I'm going to come to you for this one, Corinne. We have Francis back. Francis, thanks for tuning in again. We know that certain groups... First Nations, women, visible minority women, women with disabilities, single senior women are more likely to fall below low income cutoffs. What are your thoughts about effective measures that could be taken to improve economic security for these vulnerable groups? And Karina, maybe you could offer Francis some insight and Haley as well. I'm interested to hear what you think here. Yeah, that is a very important question is the question, right? It's about flipping the pyramid upside down and putting our most vulnerable at the top. Um, I think it's a three pronged approach. I really think three important policies could actually, um, you know, eliminate most of those issues. Number one is housing. Uh, we talked about this a lot and we have the expert on the call. That's not me, but 
I know there's an initiative called Housing First. Um, and it's predicated on the idea that if we can find people homes and housing and accommodation, then we can deal with all the other barriers and challenges in order to access and contribute in the economy. Um, and that to me is a no brainer. It's also all the data points to the fact that if we do that, it'll cost us way less uh, in terms of providing supports for these vulnerable populations now and in the future. Uh, the return on investment is exponential. Uh, so to me, that's a no brainer. The second one is a universal basic income. So making sure that everybody has access to a living wage um, is critical. We can't, I mean, how on earth can we possibly service our most vulnerable if they're working, you know, three jobs at low wage uh, just to make ends meet, uh, there's no way that they're going to advance themselves, get educated, be able to move and evolve within, you know, the economy and, and contribute the way that they could. And the third is childcare. So we talk a lot about our most vulnerable are mostly single mother homes. Um, and unless we have really good, affordable, high quality Childcare, then we can't get this whole half of our, um, you know, um, of our population in the work uh, environment and, and contributing. So I think it's a one, two, three punch. And and if we can make those things, you know, universal across Canada, high quality, and meeting the needs of this, like the system actually delivering the outcomes that it's supposed to, instead of benefit just benefiting some, I think we'll we'll be most of the way there. Yeah. That's a great answer. And Haley, before we come to you for further reflection, you know how you hear some ideas that kind of just blow your hair back? I was reading a Rifkin book and he, and he said that basically access is predicated, and he means economically, but I think it goes even further. Access is predicated on three things. You need to have the communication tools that allow you to coordinate economic activity, the means of mobility that allow you to move around, and the power that enables economic activity. So if you look at someone like me, who certainly is walking on the shoulders of other people in regards to my heritage and my privilege, and I know that it sometimes can see, be seen as a lack of humility when someone offers that, but it's, it's a fact, it's not an emotional thing. I have a gas-powered vehicle, I have a cell phone, I have the internet, and I never worry about when the lights come on. The single mother who works three waitress jobs, who may have to access the local bus system, is at such a disadvantage at accessing the tools needed to get to the next level. And so it's, I think, Karina, when you say, when you talk, it just, it just comes to my mind that it's all about systems and design. And so I thank you for offering that. Haley, what do you think about that? How do we, how do we ensure access to vulnerable groups? I, I definitely agree with those, those three points. Those are three key areas that we need more pivoting um, in, uh, you know, just also one of the commentary I would make is, um, I just sent a, a quick Skype to my staff and they estimated about we have about 80 individuals that we're working with right now that are turning 65 in the next year. And we've, they are just can't wait for the guaranteed income. So, like, and that is so sad. Like that is so sad that we have that inequity and all the benefits that have been available, um, you know, an extra uh, five, six, seven, $900 to seniors during this pandemic. So seniors with a mobility disability, what a gift that was, but what an inequity for those that are 64 and under. So it, it always saddens me that we have people that are, are so excited about having their basic needs met because they're turning 65. Um, and, and we experience that every day. They get us to help start their applications, those with a lit, low literacy really early. Um, I, I just, 
want to mention the youth component too. Our organization started a transition program. We were seeing far too many young people with a mobility disability not going on to post-secondary or jobs. Um, our guidance counselor ratios in New Brunswick are like one to one person to 500 students. So the young people we work with that may be exceptionally bright, that are exceptionally bright, but they need a for- they need to find accessible housing on university and adapted equipment and assistive technology, and they need to find accessible transportation that doesn't have to be booked three weeks in advance and all of those things, um, they're not easy to place. So uh, there's not a lot of time spent in supporting those individuals. And, you know, this year we've had a really high number of young people that we've supported that have gone to post-secondary for the first time that have been sitting home three years, four years post high school because they thought there were too many roadblocks, their family was exhausted from all the advocacy they've had to do, and no one took the time to plan. And so that's one other thing. Um, We have such an untapped labor market of people with a disability in this province that with the right supports um, can can go to work and are ready to work. And uh, that's another area that we really need to focus some um, some attention on. And we've we've done that with young people with a mobility disability. And like, just imagine we had a social um, uh, we have a social work student that went off to university and she they were recommending that she stay in high school for three years, three years longer until the cutoff because she had a disability um it was acing her classes that's totally unacceptable in mm-hmm. in today's day and age i'm so thankful she had the support of one of our transition planners to help her take all those roadblocks out of the way because our attitude has to be okay these roadblocks now what so what what resources are out there and how can we bring people together to change that right thank you very much Haley. Tim, one final one for you from the audience until we get to segments and Q&A, because I am aware of you generously having given your time. Aditya. Hi, Aditya. Thanks for listening. So this question is around housing. It's the government's willingness to evict people into a pandemic, as she says. We have heard the calls for a moratorium to be put back in place, but landlords push back, pointing to the availability of CERB. What specifically would Tim tell Premier Higgs to do is if he was if he was able to join us today in regards to that rent or eviction moratorium. Great question from uh, Addy, who's actually a friend of mine and recently Wonderful. moved to recently moved to Fredericton, and uh, he's actually been organizing some some good conversations about housing. So uh, definitely check out his uh, his work. Um, right. Well, the. There was a moratorium on evictions, um, and it ended in New Brunswick uh, the end of May. And so I'm not close enough to the ground in New Brunswick any longer to know the whys and wherefores around that discussion. I really hope that civil society looks very closely at this monitors very closely and 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 we need to really, really ask ourselves the question, do we think it is appropriate or even tolerable to enable evictions due to the economic circumstances that people are facing due to COVID-19, due to the loss of their jobs, due to uh, reductions in their income. And my my view is I, I really hope people don't think that that's a good idea. Um, nobody questions that we all need clean air to breathe um, in order to stay alive. We also all need a roof over our heads. So. I think we need to really monitor this very closely. Who's falling behind on their rent? Why are they falling behind on their rent? And what's the best way to help them uh, catch up and stay 
stably housed? And um, that's an important question that we need to ask ourselves, particularly as, uh, you know, there was just an extension to the CERB, but it doesn't, it's not getting to everybody. Um, what happens when that ends and, and there's not a job to go back to, right? And uh, no one, no one should be evicted due to uh, due to COVID-19 and, and, um, we can do better, um, than we need to do a lot better than we did, uh, after the 08 recession, right? Mm. After the 08 recession, um, people, people were, people faced a very tough time. And then housing is a very safe investment in Canada due to, uh, the system that we've designed and it was, it's heavily financialized, right? And, uh, it became rental housing became an asset class that, uh, large equity funds could come in and buy up huge swaths of rental housing and slowly raise the rents, sometimes even more mm. quickly raise the rents, do a mm. few modest, uh, renovations. And then boom, you've, you've, you've done a mass eviction of a community, racialized communities, uh, persons with disability, um, mm. people who are living in poverty and, and where, where are people going to go? And so that's another thing we really need to watch for during COVID-19 is we need to prevent the financialization, further financialization of housing. And the, the federal government is actually considering um, right now uh, an acquisition program. Um, I, I know this is a, this is an active discussion. How can um, the federal government use its purchasing power to acquire distressed housing assets and then put them into uh, trust in community trust? So, you know, everyone's familiar with a nature preserve or nature trust. We need to do the same thing with a larger percentage of our housing in Canada. Um, we've only got a 600,000 units of community owned housing in Canada that's owned by community or the people who live there. We need more. Um, mm. We need more of that in order to really make sure that everyone has a, a safe place to uh, safe place to call home. Thanks very much, Tim. And thank you for the question from the audience. Okay. This is the fun part. We're very quickly going to go into our segments and rapid fire. You're each going to get three questions, two of which are the same. So the two who go last have an advantage. Karina, you're going to go first. You are, uh, you are on the hot seat. So the first one is, is a segment our listeners love called overrated underrated. Okay. Pretty simple. I offer you an idea and you tell me in your mind with how it's currently being framed, if it's overrated, eh, it's okay. If it's underrated, yeah, we need to double down and head in that direction as it pertains to the topics we're discussing here. Okay, Karina, overrated, underrated. You lucked out with this one. I had this done before we even had a discussion. Overrated, underrated, UBI. <laughs> Heavily underrated. <laughs> okay, do you want to expand on that or leave it at that? Well, I just I think that we've been talking about it. It's got a lot more airtime now, but um, we haven't advanced in any way, shape or form a conversation about like prototyping it in Canada. And so it's time mm -hmm. to take action and stop talking about it and move into the next phase. Yeah. Thank you. What was, is or could be a New Brunswick turning point? Food. I totally ah, believe that if we answer. can create local supply chains of food, we will change our own economic prosperity. But I think we're also a great experimentation ground for new types of growing techniques that we can then share with the rest of the world. Unique answer. That hasn't been said yet. Awesome. What is one thing New Brunswick needs to unlearn? 
the whole government dependent have mm. not province mentality. It's time to let that go, let it die. We are going to be driven by all sectors deciding together and we are mm -hmm. going to win this because we are nimble and innovative and we care. Love it. That one has definitely been said. We need to get we need to get away from that. Tim, over to you. You're also going to play overrated underrated. This has been mentioned a lot in the literature, even by friends of mine, co-board members, etc. A housing first model in tackling social and economic challenges. Housing first, overrated or underrated? I would say it's it's underrated. Uh, definitely need more housing, um, and we need to um, expand the housing first approach because it's it's uh, it, it does have it does come with some criticisms which are well founded. Um, housing first is most connected to dealing with chronic homelessness. We need to we need to expand that um, and and make sure that we're looking at housing first from uh, gendered and 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 racial uh, uh, lens as well. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who works in mental health services on PEI, and he also agrees with you. Underrated. What was, is, or could be a New Brunswick turning point? Um, well, maybe uh, the I I, I I like what Karina said, and and the stats mm -hmm. just just boggled my mind. The amount of food production that New Brunswick had in the '70s compared to today, right? And uh, and um, I and I had some fiddleheads last week, and it made me really happy and homesick. So, uh, so I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna say food. Yeah, it's a good answer. It really is. What is one thing New Brunswick needs to unlearn? And of course, we do give you some leeway here, being out of the province for some time. Um, well, I think uh, New Brunswick needs to, just like all places, take seriously uh, uh, calls to be anti-racist and to to walk the path of reconciliation and build good relationships. Mm. Great answer. Haley, up to you. You're also going to play overrated, underrated. Okay. This one's interesting. It was actually submitted to me by a listener. And again, I, I understand that their expertise is in different areas, but I want you to have a crack at this. I want you to stretch. Okay. Overrated, underrated. For-profit businesses that have a give back model. So for example, Tom shoes, you buy one Tom shoes, they send another pair somewhere else. Is that an overrated concept or is that an underrated concept? Absolutely underrated. You know, social responsibility is, I, you know, I, there's so much value in that and being an active member of the, you know, community and being able to recognize what the social issues are in your community and um, would love to, you know, various corporations do that through donation programs, giving volunteer time, giving funds, and we need to have more conversations about that social lens and social responsibility responsibility in corporations. So many are doing so much and uh, there's a lot of best practices and a lot of corporations that we should really profiling in New Brunswick that do that well. What was, is, or could be a New Brunswick turning point? This one for me is like when this happens, I retire like tomorrow, 20 <laughs> years. Um, when we really, and we, again, we have the, we have the, the, 
the sandbox to do this well. It's about re reinventing our navigational systems in New Brunswick versus from case management of income supports to planning and navigating to help people reach their goals, find jobs. You know, we, mm. we work on such a deficit system and the goalie, you know, your image about the goalie, we do that. People are trained social workers. Um, and I have so many friends that are social workers that have now evolved into funders and gatekeepers. How did that happen? And they hate mm. that. They're not using their skill sets. So if we can take our social assistance system, our long-term care and disability support systems and turn them into from case managers to planners and navigators and get that right. And there's so many good models. Um, mm. You know, New Brunswick's going to have nothing but uh, a focus on people's ability and potential versus deficit models. What is one thing New Brunswick needs to unlearn? Uh, I think bad engagement. Like, you know, there just still is terrible engagement. You know, my best learning is when, you know, 50% of our board have a mobility disability and they have the skill sets and the accounting and the MBAs and all of these legal background, but they bring that lens and perspective that enables us to look at strategy that's so completely different. And I still see a lot of terrible engagement where the populations most affected aren't brought at the brought to the table. I'll end with a quick example when the you know when the mill issue in northern New Brunswick and everyone was losing jobs and we were so focused on the economy I had 50 families that supported people with a mobility disability that losing their jobs losing their health benefits oh my goodness it was crisis planning and so we were heavily involved in the planning and navigating to try and reduce and mitigate the issues faced by those families and yet when you look at the big lens of who was trying to fix the, the mill, the industry issue. Um, there wasn't a lot of social policy, a lot of, you know, social sector and organizations involved. And so we need to say, and, and Karina talked about this beautifully, about knowing who you need to have at the table and create the right environments for that to, to welcome people. And, and uh, you know, we, the best ideas and put policymakers, academics, people with lived experience, nonprofits in a room, boom, it's magic. Mm. Karina LeBlanc, Tim Ross, Haley Flero, thank you so much. This has been the final installment of Turning Point. Okay, folks, that's it from us. For those who have been with us the entire time, we thank you. Turning Point has been an incredible opportunity for us to rediscover and reimagine what New Brunswick looks like on the other side of COVID-19. We've had 10 funding partners We've had more than 750 people attend the sessions live. As of last week, we're approaching 1,000 downloads on the podcast. We know you want change. COVID-19 has disrupted our routines and conventions. It seems crazy that what was once unimaginable in one month has become par for the course. We really believe, and our funders believe, that this could be a watershed moment in this province, but only if we double down, only if we use this momentum. We've had more than 40 guests on the podcast. We've had 16 virtual webinars and 16 podcasts spanning two languages. We need this to be a catalyst. We need to double down. We need to know what's that 80-20 for this province. What do we pull out of our provincial realities and turn into innovation. You'll hear more 
from the Turning Point team very soon. We thank you for being with us. Let's keep the conversation going.